If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 7. Black had to admit his crew was probably right. As he peered through his slim spyglass at the ship just visible on the horizon, he began to accept he was entirely beyond reason. He could just make out the crew of the Albatross scrambling all over their foundering brig. They were desperately trying to launch a pair of lifeboats into a turbulent sea, even as heavy clouds and a sullen sky guaranteed another strong storm by nightfall. Meanwhile he raced toward them on winds so powerful they threatened to rip the sails right off his masts. Whether the men he watched died on their broken ship, or sank to the bottom of the sea in their tiny boats, made no difference at all to him. The only thing that mattered was finding the girl he had yet to see on deck. When he saw which boat they put her into, he would hunt it down like a whale in the water as soon as he had salvaged the larger ship. As he had for several days, Black contemplated a paradox. Aware he was being stalked, the master of the Albatross had still allowed himself to be cut away from the herd of merchant ships being shepherded across the sea by Her Majesty's Navy. As the first of these cursed storms had come up, the man had poured on all sails, covering every mast on his tub with sheets, then sent every man aloft to keep them flying. As anyone might have predicted, the delicate bones of the masts and spars had begun to break from the tension. Sails had fallen, lines had fouled and now captain and crew were abandoning ship. In his infinite wisdom, had the captain of the Albatross really hoped to outrun a boat twice his size, twice as fast, with all of thirty cannon? No amount of gold plate, no girl on earth, was worth riding a sinking boat to the bottom of the sea. And now, having killed his ship, he seemed determined to kill his crew by putting them in long boats thousands of miles from any shore. He did this rather than surrender to the ship that had followed him so long? If Black had an opportunity to hang the man this very day for his idiocy, he would make it a point to do so. But now Devon was forced to consider another bad commander. He was master of a ship known as the Widowmaker in every port south of Dominica. He had a loyal and highly skilled crew bartered, bribed, and pinched from over a hundred ships. Yet for this man, the girl on that ship was reward enough to risk his boat, his crew, and his life for. This man's desire for revenge was reason enough. So even as Devon cursed the captain of the Albatross for a fool, he had to admit he was far worse. And while he might not lose his ship this night, the loyalty of the crew he valued so much was being sorely tested. They scuttled away from him when he drew near, obeyed his orders as if they thought he might shoot them for a moment's delay, and whispered in corners above and below decks as if they thought he didn't have ears. Of course they had seen him kill before, they prized him for it. They knew he was in a killing rage now. That, in end of itself, did not call his wits into question. But this time, for the first time, his target was a woman. 
and that was passing strange. Corwin awoke to loud cracks and a sense that she was falling into darkness. She sat bolt upright, heart pounding, hand pressed to her chest. Was that thunder? Was the storm right overhead? Panic made it impossible for her to breathe. The candle she had kept lit in a little glass lamp by her bed was long out, the room was indeed pitch black. Sooner or later this godforsaken storm had to end. When would the albatross find smooth waters again? As if in answer, the ship shuddered and Corwin heard something heavy tumble across the deck over her head. What on earth was going on up there? She would have to ask Margaret when she returned from her turn on deck. How the girl could muster the courage to go aloft. Margaret was dead, Corwin remembered suddenly. She'd been lost to the moor of the deep days ago. Corwin hadn't seen a single soul since the mate had come to tell her the girl was gone. No one had come to bring her food or drink for ever so long. She put her feet over the side of her bed. She was going to open the door to get some light, find a gown to put over her nightdress, put shoes on her feet, and then she was going to go up on deck. They couldn't keep her pen down here like an animal forever. She had a right to know what was going on. She had paid for passage on this ship and she should be treated better than a pig kept for slaughter. Except that Corwin's feet encountered not just the hard wood she expected when they touched the floor, but ankle-deep water as well. Another loud crack pulsed through the belly of the ship. The surface she was trying to stand on convulsed then tilted hard to one side. Corwin slipped into the gap between the beds and had to fight off a pair of trunks that tumbled down on top of her. Wet clothing, paper, water and tin suddenly covered every surface she touched in the dark. Corwin waited for the ship to right itself for a long moment, then realized it never would. Something was terribly wrong. She fought her way to her feet, clawed her way to the door, and pried it open, only to be shoved back by a wall of thigh-high water that rushed into the tiny room. When she was able to stand again, she struggled out the door into the canted companionway, then half walked, half crawled, toward the all but invisible steps she knew lay just ahead. Every wave brought more water and detritus down into the ship through the door at the top of the stairs and she realized the ship must be sinking. Why had no one come for her? Why had no one called her to the boats? She remembered the mate's final words to her. There be no place for a woman at sea. She was climbing up the uneven steps with the dubious help of the broken rail when the ship twisted hard and bounced up as if something somewhere had just let go. Losing her footing caused her head to smack a beam hard and for a long moment the world went black. When she came to her senses she was crouched on the steps, one hand pressed hard to her head where something hot and sticky coated her hair. Mustering all her strength, she staggered to her feet and clambered out the companionway door, only to encounter Bedlam. Pounding rain fell through yards and yards of sailcloth that covered the deck like a white canvas sea. All the ship's masts were broken, and the largest of these lay in long shards just outside her door. She realized, belatedly, that she could easily have died in the ship, sealed inside by a crushed hall and staircase. She waded through water and sail to where she knew the ship's rail should be. In the process she found the deck beneath her feet disappearing entirely. The ship was sinking by her stern. The bow of the ship with its mermaid figurehead was rising ever higher. The wood she had been standing on amidship now sloped down into the deep. She pushed past a curtain of white sail that still clung to a collapsed mast and saw the shape of her salvation. Ten yards off, riding high and proud in swirling waves, was another vessel. Another merchant ship, much larger, much better armed, with three long masts reaching proudly to a turbulent sky. 
A long boat filled with men and cargo was being hoisted out of the sea and up the side of the ship by men pulling long ropes hand over hand. Had they left her behind? Had a ship come to rescue the crew and left her to die trapped in her cabin? Had no one told them she was here? She called out frantically. She waved her hands over her head, fought rope and sail to get to the side. She must be all but invisible in this destruction. Almost inaudible in all the chaos of the wreck, wind, and rain. She reached the rail which was swiftly becoming a ladder as the ship tipped down into the sea. She stood on one of the once vertical posts and waved her arms. She screamed, then screamed again. And someone nearby called back. First she looked around, then she looked up, seeking the source of the shout she had heard. There, high above her, a figure hardly visible in the darkness wind and waves, stood on what was now the highest point of the ship. The figurehead that would be the last bit of the ship to enter the sea. Frantic, she started to climb. Hand over hand, foothold after foothold, she scrambled up. Eventually she reached a point where there was nothing else to climb on. The smooth hull of the ship gave her no purchase. Then the man, her savior, her hero, knelt down, extended his hand to grab her raised arm, and he pulled her up to stand beside him in one long fluid motion. She looked down to find her bare feet on the wood face of the figurehead. Once she had thought the woman to be a mermaid singing. Now she looked like a woman dying. Far below the head she could see the devastated length of the ship disappearing into the sea. Head swimming, cold to the bone now that she was in the wind in nothing more than a nightdress, she heard the man say. Hold on. He wrapped the iron bar of one arm around her waist and she folded her arms tightly around his neck. There was a moment of shock, a sense of familiarity, an instant of uncertainty, and then they were falling from the dying ship dropping into the vast chasm between the two vessels as men from the other boat hauled hard on the line they were swinging from. Her saviour took the brunt of the blow against his back when they slammed hard into the side of the other ship. Then she felt jerk after hard jerk as they were lifted up and away from miles of black water that rolled beneath their feet. When her rescuer stepped onto the rail and dropped her onto the ship, she fell onto her hands and knees. She remained there, chest heaving, heart pounding, all but oblivious of the men that gathered around her. She heard her hero barking orders to hoist the sails, get the salvaged cargo below, and seal the hatches. Unable to believe her ears she looked up. Devon Black, clearly in command of this hardy ship, looked like Neptune risen from the deep. Bare-chested, long hair wild, and with breeches that fit him like a second skin, he looked entirely at home in this chaotic world of rain, wind, and sea. As consciousness fell away, Corwin found herself thinking she had been right about him all along. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond 5.